Go ahead and be seated. <clears throat> Turn with me in your Bibles to the Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 2 is our sermon text, verses 6 through 8. The text is actually 6 through 8. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. But 6 through 8 is going to be the focus of my, uh, my message. <clears throat> but so you can get the context. This is the word of the Lord. Yes, it was written by a man named uh, Paul. But it was also written uh, simultaneously by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and because God himself is the author, uh, that means that there are no uh, errors in Scripture. God is perfect. Uh, he does not make mistakes, and so there are no mistakes uh, in in his word, in the Holy Scriptures, um, or in faithful translations of them. So listen reverently as I read to you Philippians 2, 1 through 11. If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, If any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself." Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And again, we are in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of sinful men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Pray with me. O Lord, you are the true and the living and the only God. 
And you are worthy of every ounce of attention, love, faith, reverence, obedience um, that we can render, and indeed far beyond what we are capable of rendering, even if we were perfect people. We're not perfect. We're forgiven. But, Lord, you deserve everything from us and far more. Would you please help us now in this time, um, this very important time, well, this preeminent means of grace is being utilized. Would you please speak to us? Would you please instruct us? Would you please prevent error from falling from my lips? Uh, And would you please instruct your people in your truth that you might be glorified? and that that your church might be edified. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, do you know what the word, I'm going to use a big word now, but uh, I'll explain it to you. So you may or may not have heard this word used, but have you ever, uh, do you know what the word humiliation means? To humiliate someone, do you know what that means? Uh, Humiliate and humiliation are, they come from the same uh, underlying word. Humiliation occurs when a person's dignity, and that's kind of a big word too, but mean a person's worth. We all have worth because we're made in the image of God, right? You have great worth and, and uh, all of us have great worth because we're made in God's image. And when a person is humiliated or experiences humiliation, that's when that person, a person's dignity or worth is reduced or lessened, or is not recognized by people who should recognize it. Okay, it's our worth is is not recognized, or it is it is it is uh, brought uh, it is made lower by somebody else than what it we deserve. That's when a person is humiliated, when their dignity or worth is not recognized or is reduced by somebody. This happens to you, and I'll give you an example of when it might have happened to you. This happens to you, or has happened to you, if you've ever had somebody treat you as if you were younger than you really are. So, uh, I remember when I was some of y'all's ages, I didn't like being treated like a little baby. Because I wasn't. I was five or six years old, and I wanted to be treated like I was five or six years old. And you probably do too. Like to be treated like your age, right? Uh, and when you're treated like somebody who's younger than your age, you don't like it. Because you've been humiliated in some sense. Now, if you're being bad, maybe you deserve that humiliation. That's always a possibility that you need to consider. But at any rate, that's what it means to be humiliated. Uh, and it's not right. Uh, uh, I, I say it's not right. Sometimes it is. But it, it doesn't feel right uh, or feel good when, when our dignity or our worth is not acknowledged or recognized by others the way it should be. And while many, many people in this world um, have experienced humiliation during their lifetime, uh, on many occasions perhaps for many of us, no one, no one at all has ever experienced as much or nearly as much humiliation as Jesus Christ our Savior did. No one even comes close no matter what they've endured, to 
to what the humiliation that Jesus experienced uh, when he came into this world. Shorter Catechism question 27 uh, asks, Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? I'm not going to cover all the material in the Shorter Catechism question here, but I want you to hear what the Shorter Catechism question's answer is. Uh, when he says, Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? It's, uh, the answer is, Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, being made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and undergoing the power of death for a time. That is a sum, summation, of the humiliation, um, which is related to the word humility, but it's usually, that's, uh, um, it comes from without, uh, usually, as opposed to humility, which comes from within. Uh, that is the humiliation that Jesus experienced while he was in this world. Enormous humiliation. And the text that we are looking at here in Philippians speaks eloquently to what happened, or the humiliation that Jesus endured and experienced, which began with when he came into this world, was conceived and then born in the womb of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem, uh, which we celebrate uh, his incarnation every Sunday, not just once a year. Uh, but uh, many people are particularly thinking about the incarnation of Christ at this time of year, and thus I'm going to preach this text today. <clears throat> there are two things that we're going to focus in on in verses 6 through 8 of, our, of Philippians 2. First, we're going to look at the humiliating nature of Jesus' incarnation, his becoming a man. And secondly, we're going to look at the even more humiliating nature of Jesus' death or crucifixion. So the humiliating nature of his incarnation, of his birth, in other words, or his conception and birth, and the, and the even more humiliating nature of his crucifixion at the hands of sinners. So first, his the humiliating nature of his incarnation, his becoming a man. The humiliating nature of the incarnation of Jesus, the enfleshment, if you will, of, G- of, of God the Son, is evident from a number of things that are alluded to uh, implicitly or explicitly uh, stated in this passage. First of all, it's evident in what he gave up, what God the Son gave up when he became a man. It's evident from what he became, that is, becoming a man itself, and it's evident from the circumstances surrounding his conception and his birth. <clears throat> First of all, it's evident from what he gave up, what God the Son gave up. Prior to the time when you and I were conceived in our mother's uh, womb, we didn't exist. There was no such thing <clears throat> as uh, Mrs. Pat Bennett. There was no such thing as Pat Bennett. There was no such thing as Morgan Hay. There was no such thing as Mark O'Neill. We did not exist prior to our conception. Now, yes, there is a, we did exist, if you will, exist in quotes, in the mind of God. 
We all existed in the mind of God who willed in eternity past, if you will, before he even made time, he willed to bring us into being. So God planned us, if you will. But we didn't exist, actually exist. Our bodies and our soul uh, did not exist uh, in time and space until that point when we were conceived in our mother's womb. That's when you and I came into being. This was not true of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth existed. Let me rephrase that. Um, God the Son existed, who was Jesus of Nazareth was and is God the Son. He existed before he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. This isn't news to most of you. Uh, perhaps it is. Uh, if it is, know this, that the Bible teaches very clearly that he existed, God the Son existed, prior to being conceived and as a human being, uh, before being united to our humanity, if you will, as the God-man. He existed as God the Son, as the second person of the triune God. He, in fact, existed before time began, before the universe was created, before there was anything, before there was before if you will. He is the eternal divine Son. And as God, our text tells us, now we're referring specifically to the language that Paul uses here in verse 6, as God, he existed in the form of God. It's kind of a little bit strange language that Paul is using, but I will explain what I think its meaning is here in a moment. But he existed in the form of God because he was God. Now, the Bible tells us, and we learn this in John 4 and other places as well, uh, Deuteronomy 4 and so on, that God is spirit. God is spiritual. God is spirit, which means God doesn't partake of matter in any way, shape, or form as God. Okay? There is no arm of God, eyes of God, hands of God, strong arm of God. Those are all anthropomorphisms that are found in the Bible, ways of trying to communicate some truth about God that uses language that we as human beings are familiar with. That's an anthropomorphism. God is not material because he is spirit. So we can't, as God, be touched, if you will, or seen. Now, Just because God the Son, like God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, but we're fixating, we're focusing in on God the Son here, just as, just because God the Son had no material shape, if you will, prior to the time um, that he was united to our humanity in the womb of the Virgin Mary, just because he didn't have a material shape before that moment in time, that does not mean that Jesus, or that God the Son, had no form slash appearance at all prior to that time when he was conceived. And I think that's what Paul is getting at when he uses this language, he existed in the form of God. What Paul is probably, and I I say probably, I'm not going to be dogmatic here, but I think this is a a good, uh, 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 a, a reasonable conclusion. 
What Paul is probably referring to when he speaks here of the form of God is not, again, hands, mouth, eyes, arms at all, but it's a reference to the infinite glory and majesty of his, div- of his being, of his divine, of his spirit, if you will, of his, of his spiritual divinity. And it's a, it's a, uh, it's a reference to that glory that he possesses because he is the great I am. A glory that he periodically manifested to the people in the Old Testament times by taking on to himself some glorious visible form, the, the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud, the, uh, the burning bush, uh, etc., the angels of the Lord, or the angel of the Lord, uh, and so on. Those were examples where, where the glory of the triune God, or one of the persons of the Godhead, was manifested in some way through, uh, a, something that he borrowed from the creation, uh, to make himself visible. But even then, even in those theophanies that are found in the Old Testament, the true magnificence, the true splendor of his glory was only hinted at in the angel of the Lord, in the power, in the pillar of fire, uh, the pillar of cloud, and so on. It was veiled, if you will, uh, in large part, even in the theophanies. And it is this divine splendor, magnificence because of, 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 that that emanates from himself as 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 God, that the Son possessed as his, if you will, form prior to his incarnation. He existed in the, if you could say, you could almost replace the word form with the glory of God. And it is <clears throat> um And it, yeah, and so, and secondly, the text goes on, verse six, uh, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now that's the way the New American Standard translates it. I think it's better translated. Uh, did, did not regard equality with God a thing to be taken advantage of. Uh, some, some of your translations, I think the ESV maybe, uh, uh, uses that, uh, translates the uh, the Greek that way and I think that's probably a better understanding of what uh, is um, of what's meant by Paul here and the Holy Spirit so uh, it did not regard a thing uh, equality with God a thing to be taken advantage of so in other words during his time here upon the earth God the Son refused to use the glory the majesty that he possessed as the eternal son for his own advantage. He gave up, if you will, that advantage of being, uh, to some degree, of being God. He didn't give up any of his divinity. That's not what I'm saying. But he gave up the advantage of his glory and his divinity. To some degree. So that's what Jesus, what God the Son gave up when he was made flesh, when he was united to our humanity. Secondly, his, the uh, humiliation uh, of his incarnation is evident from what he became. <clears throat> the second person of the Godhead united himself to our humanity. He became a man. He became the God-man. 100% God, 100% man, but 100% man. 
as Paul, as John puts it uh, in his gospel, the word became flesh. And by doing this, by the by the by the eternal word, the eternal Son, the second person of the Godhead, becoming flesh, becoming a man, uniting himself to our humanity and in his human nature, what happened at that moment when the when the Holy Spirit conceived him in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the timeless, the eternal Son became time-bound came into time and became um, susceptible to time, if I can put it that way. The infinite creator became a finite creature. The one who is incapable of change became mutable, changeable. The immortal one became subject to our mortality as evidenced by his eventual death on the cross. Becoming flesh, in other words, becoming a man, was inconceivably, we can't fathom how humiliating, and yes, sometimes we can use the word humbling, but it's more than just humbling. It was humiliating, as we understand the term and use the term, because of what he gave up. And what he became in relation to what he has always been eternally as God. But becoming flesh, though it was enormously humiliating all by itself, he went even further than doing just becoming a man. Notice he wasn't born in Caesar's palace as the son of Caesar. He wasn't born in Herod's palace as the son of Herod. He didn't come as one of the greatest men that's ever lived, at least in terms of his socioeconomic status. He came as a humble servant. Verse 7. But he emptied himself. Actually, uh, the the order should be, but taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, he emptied himself. I'll explain that in a little bit but taking the form of a, notice, bond servant. Taking the role, uh, assuming the position of a servant, a bond servant, a humble, one who is humble and under uh, uh, under uh, someone else. <clears throat> this is God now. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> this is God the Son, the eternal Creator of all, the one who spoke the whole universe into existence, is becoming a servant when he becomes a man. He deserved to be acclaimed by every soul then living and that would ever live. He deserved to be acclaimed as the supreme monarch of the universe, which is what he was and is as God, and to be served accordingly. By all those people. That's what he deserved. But he was not so honored when he came into this world because he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. His humiliation, the humiliating nature of his incarnation is thirdly evident, not only 
from what he gave up and what he became, but also from the circumstances surrounding <coughs> his conception and birth, which I'm veering a little bit away from the, this passage right now, uh, although it's, it's, it's implicit in becoming a bondservant. Um, you all know uh, that Jesus was conceived in the womb, uh, God the Son, rather, uh, was conceived in the womb of a humble virgin, uh, humble virgin Jewish girl, a girl uh, who, contrary to the unbiblical assertions of the Roman Church, was a sinner, just like you and me. Um, and J- J- Jesus of Nazareth partook of her genes, not Joseph's, because Joseph had no part, but uh, played no part there. But uh, he partook of her genes and her humanity, but not of her sin. And for nine months, while she was carrying him, the one who created her was um, and was sustaining her in her pregnancy would himself be sustained by her within her body. It's, 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 it's mind-boggling when you think about that a little bit deeply. That God is dependent upon her. Excuse me. When it was time for the king of kings to be born, in addition to what I just said, uh, when it was time for him to be born, rather than being born, (coughs) as I said, in Rome, the political capital of the the world, uh, or whether he was born in Jerusalem, rather than being born in Jerusalem, which was the spiritual capital of the world, he was born in a sleepy little village in a minor province of the Roman Empire. And he came into this world, not as a full-grown man, with all the capacities of a full-grown man, but he came into this world as a helpless baby. Humiliating, humiliating, humiliating. And rather than being born in the warmth and comfort of a royal palace, he was born born in a cold, undoubtedly uh, cold, or at least cool, that time of year, barn, with farm animals and the smell of manure all around him. And rather than being laid in the softness of a feather bed, uh, he was laid in a hard, saliva-covered feeding trough, probably made of wood. God was. Humiliating. Profoundly humiliating. That the creator and sustainer of the universe should condescend, not only to become a time and space-bound creature, not only to reside in a sin-cursed world, but uh, and not only to become a man rather than an angel, let's say, but to enter into this world under such humiliating circumstances as I have just described. It's so paradoxical and incongruous, it's almost hard to, uh, it's almost absurd, really. And yet it's true. It's true. But as profound as God the Son's humiliation was when he was made flesh, and it was very profound, 
his humiliation did not stop there. It got worse, much worse. And that leads us to the second point of the even more humiliating, far more humiliating nature of Jesus' death, that is, crucifixion. We are told in verse 7 that he uh, took the form of a bond servant. I've already alluded to that. It is highly probable that Paul, as he's writing those words, had Isaiah 52 verse 13 through the end of Isaiah 53 in mind. You know that passage, that's the most famous probably, that in Psalm 22, the, mo- the two most famous messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. Uh, and Isaiah 53 is even perhaps more uh, amazing because it's so um, accurate uh, in terms of its description of what Jesus did as our substitute and uh, as our mediator. Uh, and so Paul uh, almost certainly has that passage in mind as he's writing. And by the way, the reason I say that is not just, I didn't pull that out of my hat, but because there are many verbal echoes in verses 6 through uh, 11 of Psalm, of, uh, of Philippians chapter 2. There are uh, numerous verbal echoes of that very passage of the Isaiah 52, the end of Isaiah 52 through the end of uh, Isaiah 53, uh, which means Pretty good guess that that's what Paul has in mind because he's echoing uh, those uh, that passage, that section in Isaiah. There in Isaiah, um, the Messiah is portrayed as the suffering servant of um, the the servant of the Lord. By the way, the suffering servant of the Lord of God who suffers in the place of his people. So if Paul had that passage in mind, again, he almost certainly did, then he is using the phrase, taking the form of a bondservant, here in Philippians, to refer to Jesus' assumption of that substitutionary role um, and the unfathomable humiliation that would result from his assume, assumption of that role as the servant of the Lord. Um, when it was brought to its full uh, measure of um, service at the cross, and that God, that God, the Son of God, took the form of a bondservant. He did this. We are told again in verse uh, seven. He did this in order that he might empty himself. Remember I said the order in the English should be based on the Greek, and it usually isn't, but it should be. Uh, uh, Christ Jesus, who, uh, uh, excuse me, let me back up to verse 5. Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But verse 7 should uh, be, but taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, he emptied himself. That's the way it should be written um, and, uh, because of Greek stuff. I'll just put it that way. Now, this phrase, emptied himself, I'm going I'm to kind of go on a little bit of a brief tangent here. It's not really a tangent because it's in the text. But um, this has been interpreted um, in more than one way. A lot of 
A lot of ink has been spelled over, spilled over the centuries over those words, emptied himself. Um, and one of the ways that that phrase has been interpreted, and sadly it's a pretty common interpretation even in Christian circles, is that God the Son, the Divine Son, abandoned most or all of his divine attributes. Or at least some of his divine attributes, he, he forsook them when he became a man. That's known, for those of you that are interested, as the canonic theory of the Incarnation. Don't worry about it, but it's, uh, it's the term that's used uh, from the Greek word uh, kenosis. Um, but this interpretation that, that God the Son gave up some uh, of his, or all of his divine attributes, um, does not at all square, and I hope you know this, with what the rest of Scripture teaches about Jesus, about the Son, nor does it square with the doctrine of divine simplicity. Uh, that the church down through the ages has uh, espoused and uh, has derived from the scriptures, uh, t- scriptural teaching. And it does not square with the Greek, as I already indicated to you a moment ago. It does not square with the Bible, in other words. It doesn't square with what the Greek, te- uh, what the Greek says here in this text. Some of you have heard me uh, say this before, but I'm going to say it again. In most English translations, again, Jesus' emptying of himself is mentioned before his taking of the form of a bond servant, implying that he emptied himself before he became a man, or as he was becoming a man, the, the emptying took place. But the Greek order implies the opposite. Or the Greek, I should say, the Greek grammar here implies the opposite. That his taking the form of a bondservant occurred first, followed by his emptying of himself. Since Jesus taking the form of a bondservant refers to his incarnation, what happened in Bethlehem, well actually before Bethlehem, but when he was conceived, uh, since that taking the form of bondservant is a reference to that, his emptying of himself refers to something that occurred later in time. And almost certainly, I'm, I'm tempted to say, without a doubt, I will say, without a doubt, <clears throat> it is the emptying of himself is a reference to his humbling of himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Death was God's curse, is God's curse upon unforgiven sinners. Our sin, the sin of all those people down through the ages whom God intended to save, our sin was placed on Jesus as he suffered on the cross, the, the guilt of it. And he was punished as if he was the sinner for our sin. That is the emptying of himself that is referred to, emptying of him, the, the giving up of his life as, a, as a, uh, a payment for our souls and our bodies. He died as a cursed sinner. The extent of the humiliation uh, that that of that humiliation of Jesus is evident there in that phrase in verse eight, that he um, became obedient to the point of death, and he Paul says even 
death on a cross. He doesn't just say death. He says it's even, it's even, it's even worse than that. It was death on a cross. And there's a reason, of course, he says that. Some of you know that reason. <clears throat> By experiencing uh, death on a cross, the cross was the way the worst of the worst criminals were uh, in the Roman Empire were executed. They were executed on a cross rather than beheaded or something else. Uh, the, the most vile of criminals were, were crucified. It was an exceedingly shameful way to die. They were stripped naked. They were put on public display and allowed to die slow, a slow, agonizing death while others looked on and mocked their pain. But it was even worse than that, dying on a cross. Because as many of you know, over in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, we read this about dying on a cross, or on wood. Starting in verse 22, uh, if a man has committed, again, Deuteronomy 22, excuse me, 21, forgive me, verse 22, and if a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. And here's the key part. For he who is hanged, uh, meaning on a tree, is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land. You just take, take him down, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. And Paul quotes that over in uh, Galatians, uh, that... Uh, uh, that very phrase right there from Deuteronomy uh, 23. Yes, 23. No, 22. Sorry. 21, 22. So, the cross was a sign of God's judgment, God's curse that fell upon Christ. It wasn't just a death. It was a death that involved the curse of God on him. With all that meant indescribable humiliation, um, degradation, being brought low, way lower than we could go, ever. And he did it for us, those who will trust in Jesus alone to save them. He did it for us so that we might escape what he endured, the suffering, the humiliation, the wrath and curse of God, so that we could be forgiven of our countless, almost countless, they're not countless, but they're innumerable sins, rather than being condemned for those sins, so that we might have God as our Father rather than as our furious executioner. And that's why we celebrate every Sunday the the incarnation, the birth of the Savior of the world, and the death of the Savior of the world, and the resurrection of the Savior of the world, and the ascension of the Savior of the world to glory. Every Sunday, not just December 25th. In fact, not December 25th. 
We don't know he was born, what day he was born. But he, his becoming, his coming to earth as the substitute of sinners is only a cause of celebration rather than sorrow. It's only a cause of celebration for those who have or will put their complete trust in him as Savior and Lord, or as we Presbyterians like to put it, as prophet, priest, and king. If you don't have him that way right now, if you are not trusting him as your king, well, first let's start with your priest. As your priest, the one who intercedes for you and makes you acceptable in the sight of God because he has, because his, his offering has covered your sins from God's sight. If you don't have him as your priest, you're under God's wrath. If you don't have him as your prophet, the one whose word, which is contained right here, is not your sole um, uh, sole authority, uh, final authority in your life in every matter on which it speaks. And if you don't have him as your king, if he is not the master of your life, who you serve, uh, not use, but whom you serve, you are not a Christian. You are not covered in the blood of Christ, and you are on the road to eternal destruction and horrific Uh, a horrific eternity that can't even be fathomed even remotely. But if you have him by faith, if you're resting in what he did to make you right with your triune God, then all is well. But only if you are trusting in him alone. Are you? Are you? You need to if you're not. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text, for its reminder to us of the indescribable gift that your life was to us, that you would do this for us. Makes no sense, but we are so thankful. Lord, if there's anybody here today or listening to me at home that does not know you, Lord Jesus, in the way that um, uh, brings them peace and reconciliation with you and the Father and the Spirit, would you please open the eyes of the lost who are listening, if there are any. Only you can give a new heart. Only you can give the gift of faith. Would you please make such a one see that they are in desperate need of you. And for those of us who know you, Lord, please uh, help us to be filled with gratitude, with greater gratitude than we have displayed heretofore, greater love, uh, greater awe, greater faith, greater um, hope than we have had. And would you please help us to go forth as your witnesses, bold witnesses, speaking your name, telling people how desperately they need you, and rejoicing in the fact that we have you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all, both now and forevermore. Amen.